Hello, seasteaders. Welcome back to the Seasteading Today podcast. Today, we have our third seasteading social event recording from our Discord server. The discussion is about micronations and was recorded in February of 2023. If you would like to attend a seasteading social, find the next event at seasteading.org events. Enjoy. Welcome everyone to our seasteading social on micronation. I'm Carly Jackson, the Director of Development for the Seasteading Institute, and today we have two guest speakers, Taz Riot and Jan Speakerman. Taz is the founder of Freeport, a micronation with an embassy in Southern California, and Jan is the co-founder of Ethos Island and has the title of Knight in the micronation of Flandrensis. Let's get started. Taz, how about you go first, introduce yourself, and let us know how you first got interested in micronations. Okay, sure. My name is Taz Wright. I have a background in law enforcement. Uh, more specifically, I was on a drug task force unit in the state of Oregon with the Oregon State Police. Since then, I started learning international law starting back in 2012, and I found out about seasteading through hearing about Chad and Nadia's story and then started kind of diving into it and doing research since then and helped found Freeport in December of 2016 and since then have been kind of doing what I can to help educate people and make it where people can have their freedom and sovereignty and heaven forbidden be able to live freely. Right. Jan, tell us the same. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you got interested in micronations. Yeah. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Jan Spiekermann from northern Germany, and I'm 31 years old and uh, long years of uh, professional experience as a security officer. I am involved in the micronational community since 2019, and two years later joined the Seasteading Institute. Uh, because I think that uh, seasteading and micronations—that's that's two communities which fit perfectly together. As we have so many good historical examples for seasteading micronations, like you might all know Sealand or um, Republic of Rose Island, and uh, it's really an important thing to me to bring again together both communities and uh, my motivation to be active in both communities is that I'm convinced that small political entities work better than larger ones. I mean, if we look how it's going on in the world, we see small nations like Monaco, San Marino, Andorra, to a certain extent also Singapore and other city-states, small nations which are much more safe, stable, often prosperous and uh, in some cases uh, also very free and I, I'm, I'm convinced that if we got a small community which is sovereign uh, the, the individual counts more because uh, if we are in large nation states then uh, the individual is, is nothing it's, it's a number so uh, I think that seasteading and micronations are great opportunities to create small entities where we can try out how to live together in a peaceful, respectful way, which is good for us and uh, where bigger entities could also learn from. does not mean that any big nation state would have to dissolve, but like things like decentralization, devolution, 
really federalism that, that that are things which would also work major population but let's say sea setting and micronation community can be like uh, an avant-garde so to say first i wanted to have a definition of micronations what does that designation indicate like why is it important to have that that name micronation micronation it's a it's one word for so many things i mean there are micronations with thousands of citizens or or members um micronations which really have some some kind of autonomy which have at least informal relations with recognized nation states but on the other hand there are micronations with let's say 10 members 10 citizens a micronation are or define it as a as a group of uh, people who uh, establish a group and uh, call themselves a nation while not being recognized as such by uh, a major macronation, it means an established nation. For example, there's a, a difference between, uh, say, a, a disputed uh, nation or a nation which has only some recognition, like without uh, seeing this as political statements, like like Taiwan, for example. It's not recognized by many nations, but by some it is. So uh, Taiwan is definitely not a micronation, for example, or yeah, Western Sahara. And uh, of course, a micronation often does not really have sovereignty on its territory. Some at least have some autonomy, but uh, not, not really sovereignty. But micronations are, are trying to build new nations. Why not? And this is different from uh, separatist movements. They, they are not really fighting the existing system, but uh, they, are, they are building parallel structures and um, what what they do is always in yeah, it's it's inside the law it's 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 not a aggressive secessionist movement it's uh, building parallel structures and seeing how how far we can go with that yeah and i'll just kind of add to that because the explanation that you gave is pretty good pretty accurate however i've also got a little bit more insight into it because working with the united nations and other igos micronations as far as the international community is concerned meaning family and nations un member states however you want to phrase it are not taken seriously because of the fact the very term micronation just simply means small nation which could be anything. However, the public perception and the way that people think of them are kind of like a uh, meme, where they make stuff and they don't follow international law or protocol. They just kind of, you know, joke about it and do different things. And they're not following, you know, standard procedure and protocol. So that's why none of the other nations take them serious. In fact, the term that they use instead for small countries that do have recognition and do follow the procedures and protocol and international law, they actually call microstates or city-states. They don't refer to them as micronations just simply to clearly make that distinction. Uh, a good example, one that most people uh, think of would be Vatican City. It's located there in Rome, and it is entirely owned and controlled by the Vatican. But it is indeed its own sovereign nation state. So for our conversation, would you say that a city state and a micronation are the same thing? It's just that the opinion of sort of the international stage is, is, is different on those two things? Yes, it's just a matter of how they're perceived. And the biggest thing is whether they have recognition from a 
UN member state or not. And that's kind of one of the big things, too, that I hear a lot of people talking about, and especially questions I've been asked with Freeport and stuff like that, is if we are a member of the United Nations or if we plan on joining them. And the answer to that is no. And it's not because, well, let me phrase it this way. It's because of the fact that we do not support what the United Nations does as a whole. There are some good things that they do, but there's also a lot of bad things they do. And any time that you are a member of a community or a society, there's a doctrine called e pluribus unum, which is, ironically enough, one of the United States mottos. And it simply means out of many, one. Or in legal terms, if one person in your society does something, everybody's guilty of it. And there's far too many things that the United Nations does that we view as human rights violations to be in collusion with it. So as such we do not seek nor will we seek to join with them yes and indeed it would also be pretty hard for a micronation to to get access to the united nations but indeed it's possible to to work within some organizations of the united nations like um, although i'm just a citizen and not a representative of it like like flandrensis now gained uh, observer status um, within the United Nations Environment Program and uh, is able to um, send observers if if they would have the financial capacity to do so, would be able to send observers to the United Nations Environmental Assembly in Nairobi, Kenya. So uh, and, and also some other micronations are affiliated with the um, NGO uh, section of the United Nations with the Social Committee. So there might be an opportunity, there might be an opportunity to represent some of our interests. If you can be an observer at some of the UN official meetings, can you report on them? Can you can you then publicize certain responses to, to what's decided in those meetings? Well, sure. Um, as an observer into the United Nations, if they accept you as an observator, you have full engagement with the United Nations. You just simply don't have a voice or any voting power or any power whatsoever in the United Nations. You can simply observe and report, but you cannot engage with or make any decisions or anything else. Gotcha. And so what is the incentive to form a micronation if you are not getting recognized by the UN? So the biggest answer to that is sovereignty and freedom. Forming your own society is a relatively simple, straightforward process. However, saying that, I will also say it's not an easy thing to do because of the fact it requires knowing and following international law, procedure, protocol. There's, well, I'll just walk through the steps in order to form your own society, your own government, and be able to have freedom and immunity, things like that, it requires coming together with other like-minded people because you can't do it by yourself. Uh, no man is an island unto himself. So it takes a group of people, how big or small that group is, as long as it's two or more people, frankly, is irrelevant. Um, so you come together, you sit down, you write up your constitution, how you're going to form and run your government, what the laws are going to be. Put that in paper and then in order to start the ball rolling, once you have those documents done and you make your pledges, things like that, you then have to give proper notice, which the easiest and the best way to do that is to send those documents or copy of them to the Secretary General 
of the United Nations. It is then his responsibility, or hers, it is their responsibility to notify all of their member states that, hey, there's a new you know, society, new nation, whatever they want to call it, that's forming. And the reason for that is you have to give notice to give anybody else in the family of nations a chance to respond to what you're doing. Nine times out of ten, nobody ever responds. And the reason for that is, well, there's a couple different reasons, but the main one is there's also a thing in international law called silence acquiescence, meaning when you don't object to something, you then consent to it. So when somebody makes a claim and nobody disputes that claim, that claim becomes fact after a period of time. The international law and protocol for that is six months. It goes into effect after 30 days. However, member states have up to six months to file an objection or say, hey, no, we're not doing that, or we don't recognize that, or whatever. Freeport did that. Um, when we founded, we sent out those notices and things like that. We have never gotten a response in any official capacity from any member state of the United Nations, except the U.S., and the recognition that we got from the United States did not come immediately. It actually took some time. And I'd been communicating back and forth with the U.S. and the Supreme Court because of the fact that we were curious about a court case that they had in the U.S. involving Sudan. And they eventually just told me, and they're like, well, here, we'll send you the entire court file and sent it to me as ambassador with the Freeport Diplomatic Mission here in Southern California, and that's how we got our recognition. Now, I get that some people may say, oh, that's just, you know, them putting your name on a piece of paper, mailing it to you, and whatever. That's kind of irrelevant, because official recognition can literally be just that, where a government agency or a government employee representing a government agency recognizes you as you know, an ambassador, prime minister, president, whatever, that is recognition, which is why most countries will not do, do that very easily. Um, and also, one of the uh, more straightforward processes to getting recognition from other countries is it's very much a pay-to-play kind of system. And by that, I mean they're going to want something in return in exchange for giving you recognition. There's a couple different NGOs that myself and Preport have been involved with, with providing humanitarian aid to different countries. Um, for an example, going back to, what is it, Sierra Leone and Liberia with the Ebola outbreak. We helped send over a bunch of different medical supplies, um, vehicles, things like that from the U.S. over to Sierra Leone and Liberia. In exchange for that, we eventually got recognition from them in paper form, which is fine. But they were not going to give it to us without that. And that's true pretty much in any country. They need to see that they're getting something in exchange for what they're giving up. So once you become, or Taz's Freeport, does Freeport receive notices for new micronations? Like if someone, tell me a bit about... Um, you said the Pitcairn Islands are of interest to you. So so if, if another micronation forms up in the Pitcairn Islands, do you have an opportunity to to respond to that or to say, no, wait, we that's that's where we are? If we're given notice of it, yes. However, we sent the letter to the 
United Nations Secretary General claiming that territory as part of Freeport, which is, uh, what is it, O'Neill Island, I think is how it's pronounced, which is just kind of a small island, what is it, northwest of the Pitcairn Islands. It's completely uninhabited by humans. And the only reason why we why we even claim that is simply because of the fact we got tired of when people ask me like, okay, well, where is Freeport? Because when you just type in Freeport in Google or whatever, it pulls up like Freeport Bahamas, different cities named Freeport, stuff like that. So like, so where can I find you on the map? So to solve that, we just kind of picked that island and we're like, okay, we're claiming this territory. It's there. Do we plan on seriously building anything or really developing anything there? No because of the fact that we plan on building and doing everything on the seastead. And so the other purpose of kind of claiming that island is to help protect it. And by that, I mean, like helping to protect the natural wildlife and marine life and things like that that are there. If, oh no, I was just saying, that's one of the things with that nation states uh, can do is, of course, I'm sure everybody here is familiar with the EEZ, the exclusive economic zone, and things that countries have the right to. And that is protected in international law protocol. It's followed by all UN member states. And so anytime a nation forms up, they are automatically granted those privileges and protections by international law, whether they have recognition or not. A country, a nation has the right to exist and defend itself, even if nobody else recognizes them. That's highly protected. And so by being able to claim a location, and it doesn't matter if it's land, ocean, whatever, it makes it where you can then, or the society can go in and protect like the environment, the uh, wildlife, the marine life, as well as being able to prevent other people or other groups from being able to come in and do as they please there. It also lets the that society, that nation, enforce its laws, its policies, procedures, protocols. Right. Now, Jan, I want to give you some time to talk about what um, Flandrensis is doing or what your particular focus is as part of that micronation or or other work related to micronations. Please uh, tell us tell us what you're doing. Regarding Flandrensis, I'm not that active there. I'm, I, in fact, in Flandrensis, I only hold citizenship. It's, it's, it's other micronations where I'm more active. For example, directly before this meeting here, uh, I had the pleasure to meet a fellow micronationalist who lives in my area and uh, I'm delighted that he's uh, also in the audience. Uh, like uh, also another fellow micronationalist. Um, well, uh, but, but regarding Flandrensis, it's uh, quite amazing that they got this uh, observer status in the United Nations Environment Assembly. Uh, I mean, the United Nations Environment Assembly, it's a, a governing body of the United Nations Environment Program. It's based in Nairobi, Kenya, and um, it's possible for NGOs to get observer status there, but it's it's quite hard. It's, it's relatively simple in the United Nations Economic and Social Council, but um, in the United Nations Environment Program, it's uh, pretty tough. And they they made it. And um, yeah, that's, that's a good way for 
micronations indeed to to get a foot in the United Nations uh, through the same way like NGOs do. I mean, Flandrens has, uh, for example, uh, the same status in the UN Environment Program like uh, Greenpeace or WWF. Um, I, I mean, like this this big environmental NGOs. But of course, that would give them the chance to be even physically present there and uh, to talk to delegates of uh, yeah of macro nations of established UN member states. And uh, it's it's quite similar in the Economic and Social Council of the UN. Um, there, it's quite simple to register uh, as an NGO, but uh, this does not automatic automatically include a consultative status. Um, for example, a fellow micronationalist who is in the audience also registered his uh, micronational project in the in the NGO branch of the UN Economic and Social Council. But uh, to get consultative status, uh, which means being being able to send delegates there to to talk there, of course not uh, to to vote because that's only possible for the representatives of. Uh, of recognized nations, but at least to talk there, to be present at consultations, that's also possible, but it's a, a little more tough. One has to apply and uh, really show that, that one one has some, some size, some, some impact. Well, um, I'm, for example, pretty active within an uh, Indian micronation. It's a uh, state of Vishwamitra. It's based in the, uh, the east of India, so in the Bengali region, uh, quite near to Bangladesh. Um, there, um, for example, in the in the Privy Council, as it has a you know, parliamentary monarchical constitution, and uh, yeah, I, I'm for example also active in the United Republic of Obscurium. It's a this micronation here in my area of a fellow micronationalist, where I am, yeah, so to say the. Um, Supreme Judge of Obscurium, like um, solving disputes between citizens. And um, today, for example, I was very happy to um, get some of the first notes of the um, currency Obscurium just created, because um, indeed many micronations have their own currency. And this is really a chance also in the existing uh, established um, micronations. To have your own currency, because local currencies um, or also cryptocurrencies uh, are an opportunity for micronations to create their own yeah, economic system. For example, in, in France, it's it's quite funny because France is a very centralistic governed uh, country. Uh, absolutely no federalism there and uh, quite weak local governance. But, but uh, especially in France, micronations are pretty strong and there are some uh, projects which uh, exist for decades and uh, have, for example, their own local currencies like uh, in, a, in a French town, Aigues which is in uh, the Camargue region in southern France. They got their own local currency, the flamand, which means... Uh, yeah, the Flamingo after the this, uh, fancy bird which is uh, which lives there, and um, they really uh, made it to revive the local economy of Igmort because uh, this local currency is accepted there by most shops, uh, by most restaurants, 
And uh, this was really a great thing for the local economy, as well as the micronation is a great thing for the local identity. That's very interesting. I didn't realize that they could create currencies. Hello. I just have, I have a question that kind of goes back to something that Carly had mentioned at the beginning, just so I can get some comparison and contrast and a better understanding of micronations. Um, would you consider, mentioned, you mentioned the Vatican. So would you consider Washington, D.C. and Buckingham Palace micronations or city-states? And if not, what's the difference? And this question is for either of you or both of you. I'll go ahead and answer that first. If you take a look at the United States Constitution, for an example, just I'm using that one because most people are familiar with it. They know it. The District of Columbia is the seat of power of the United States, although it is not technically a state. It is the central authority of the United States, meaning all power and authority has to go through D.C. And if I can talk about the Constitution a little bit here, just to kind of give some pretext. The idea that states have sovereignty went out the window a long time ago in the legal field because of the fact that they signed onto the U.S. Constitution, putting themselves under the United States. In international law, this is called the suzerainty of kings, meaning that one state, one society, one jurisdiction can submit itself entirely to another and have the protection of the one that they submit to. And the D.C. and, you know, like Buckingham Palace, stuff like that, they are owned and controlled by their respective governments, but they are separate from the rest of the society in that aspect. They are the sovereigns over the rest of the nation. With something like D.C., um, you know, they are required in writing to follow the laws of the United States, whether they do or do not. But when you take a look at Buckingham Palace, they don't have to follow the laws of England. They have special rights under the royalty, royal family, or whatever it is. And can't they, yes. in, in, in turn, just kind of make up their own rules and follow them? Yes, and that is the power of the sovereign. The sovereign authority have full diplomatic and legal immunity. There's nobody that can overturn that except the head of state. And the head of state, which is the president, the prime minister, the king, however you want to phrase it, they are the head of the country and they can overturn anybody's sovereign authority under them, but nobody can overturn theirs. And so they can write whatever rules, regulations, laws, change whatever they want, and there's nobody that can challenge them or overturn them on it. Okay, thank you. Hello, can I say something? Um, it's about, um, I'm from uh, the Netherlands, and we have uh, some countries and uh, status apart and separate status, like um, the three countries near uh, South America, that's Aruba, Bonaire, and Curaçao. And they are uh, very separate and uh, autonomous in their own uh, doing. The only thing they connect to the Netherlands is uh, foreign affairs, defense, and the nationality. So there's an existing uh, way of having an uh, autonomous uh, country. And that is also probably possible for uh, a micro station, micro nation. Sorry, I was having a little bit of trouble understanding you. Uh, could you repeat that? Well, in the Netherlands, we have uh, foreign uh, parts, uh, islands in, 
in the, by South America, like uh, countries as Aruba, Bonaire and Curaçao. And they have uh, they got a uh, special status, and we call that status aparte or separate status. status. So they are very autonome by themselves, but they are connected to our country, and we uh, make sure all the foreign uh, affairs, we take care of defense and we take care of the nationality. They are very, uh, very uh, independent by themselves. Yeah, but they're still under the authority of the Netherlands. And that is, like, for example, in the U.S., the states can kind of do their own things as well. And they're still part of the U.S. and everything. And the only time that it really matters or kind of comes into play is if there's a conflict in between what the local state or the local jurisdiction is doing versus the federal authority. So for an example, um, a lot of states in the U.S. have marijuana legal. You can go and buy it, use it, whatever. However, it is still technically against United States federal law. And what that means is the state, the local jurisdiction, cannot come after you because it's legal there. However, the federal government, the federal authority, can still come in, arrest you, prosecute you, everything else, because it's still a violation of federal law. The same is true with, like, overseas territories, anything like that. They are generally left to their own devices to control things themselves. But if there's ever a need, the federal authority can step in and intervene. Right. So it's not, they're still subject to the original government. But I did want to kind of move the conversation to what can micronations offer seasteaders? You know, what sort of strategy is, uh, do you guys recommend for seasteaders? I mean, Taz, you have created your micronation free port and intend to move out, move that out onto a seastead. Um, so, uh, love to hear about why you chose to, to put it in that order where you start the micronation and then move out to seastead. And then Jan, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that too. Okay, sure. So the biggest thing is essentially freedom because of the fact that when you are a citizen of any country, it doesn't matter which one, you are literally, from a legal standpoint, their property. They can do as they see fit with their citizens, their property, whatever. They own you. Um, so the way to get out away from that is to not be a citizen at all. Um, I highly recommend people go and look up the definition of the word citizen. It literally means property of, belonging to. So the reason why Freeport did that is because we don't want to have a bunch of citizens. I know that sounds kind of weird, but the reason for that is because of the fact that we want to be able to help provide people with the freedom and independence that they desire. And hey, if what we're doing isn't right for them, by all means, please find a place that suits you. But our goal is to help people have the freedom and the immunity that the citizens simply don't have. That's specifically why we don't call, you know, people involved with us citizens, we call them members because they're a member of our society. And as such, they get the legal protections and, and immunities that come along with that. We don't claim ownership over anybody. That's what citizens are. We want no part of that. Gotcha. And Jan, do you want to share about strategy with micronations and how it relates to seasteading and how seasteaders can benefit from that? Yeah, I think we got uh, two 
perfect examples in the past. I mean, Sealand, which uh, which still exists, they they made it. I mean, they are they are really free on their on their platform. Of course, the way they they did it is uh, quite adventurous because uh, without any doubt that uh, that platform at least once was a property of the United Kingdom, but uh, they they made it to to get this platform and and to live there for for many years. Uh, the family uh, who established it with together with some of their friends lived there, and uh, they they made it to get at least some kind of recognition. Because when they were in a quite early stage, the British Navy wanted to to board that platform as they were. Uh, blowing up most of them. I mean, it, it, it was not only that platform. They had uh, more of them uh, built during World War II. But uh, the yeah, inhabitants of Sealand uh, defended themselves, uh, of course, without hurting anybody, but uh, they were firing warning shots in the air. And uh, for that, as they were still British citizens and uh, also had a fishery business uh, still in Britain, they had to go to, to court, but the, the court ruled uh, that uh, they were yeah, innocent because that was not on, on British soil, not, not in British waters. And uh, although the exclusive economic zone and uh, territorial waters has, has grown, uh, mainly due to fishery reasons uh, during the last decades, they're still recognized. I mean, no nobody tries to... Yeah, uh, conquer or destroy Sealand, and the the British government uh, respects it, and they are not uh, like uh, trying to get them out there or to get their their platform back for the Royal Navy. And uh, another great example is also the Republic of Rose Island, because while Sealand took an existing physical structure, the Republic of Rose Island off the coast of Italy was built from from scratch. It, it was built. From, from nothing new and and why we are still searching for technologies to build sea stats and uh, of course ocean builders has really achieved a lot in that field during the last years uh, it's it's decades ago where this Italian engineer built its platform Rose Island and uh, of course it's sad that he was boarded by the Italian Navy and that the platform was blown up but uh, he he made it in quite a short time, and uh, I think these are two great examples. It's it's like seasteading and micronation community have the same roots because uh, Sealand is both a role model for for seasteaders as well as for micronationalists, and like like an example for both. Now, if Rose Island was um, was recognized as a micronation beforehand, would would there have been some legal recourse if the Italian Navy destroyed it? Then there'd be some recourse in in international legal circles to to get some I don't know some pay or some sort some some sort of recognition that Italy destroyed property of another nation. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Nations, whether they're recognized or not not have the right of self-defense, which is protected in international law, but also a country going into another uh, nation, state, society, however you want to phrase it, into their territory, into their jurisdiction, is a direct violation of international law. In fact, it's found under uh, interfering with the internal politics of another society or another state. And 
according to the United Nations, is a war crime, a crime against humanity. And of course, a country, a society doing that to another country would be handled by the United Nations Security Council, which I know some people like, some people hate, but that's who is in charge of enforcing those violations of international law. And so as far as micronations, sea stating having the ability to defend themselves, yes, they absolutely have the legal authority and ability to do so. But the biggest question is, how are they going to do so? One of the best ways to do so is to ally or partner with other nations to help provide the security and protection if they are unable to do so themselves. Uh, yeah, the, the Republic of Rose Island indeed back then was in international waters. If one would build a new seaset today where it was once located, it would definitely be in Italian waters because yeah, during the last decades, uh, both territorial waters and uh, exclusive economic zone have expanded a lot. But uh, back then, it was indeed highly critical that... Uh, Italy, so to say, attacked them and uh, I mean, just destroyed the, the property of this uh, engineer, Mr. Rosa. Um, I'm, I, I mean, in that case, uh, I'm, I'm sure that he would have the right to some kind of compensation because he spent a lot of money to build that structure from scratch and uh, he, he did nothing to, to harm Italy. And uh, I think... Nonetheless, that uh, Sealand, on the other hand, shows, despite being still so close to Great Britain, that it is possible uh, when one is off the coast of a of a nation which is friendly toward that idea. And uh, yeah, of of course, it's uh, better to make sure one has no hostile neighbors. Only sorry, I was just going to say the interesting thing about Sealand is, yeah, they took over a abandoned uh, platform out in the ocean and everything, which at the time was not under uh, the UK territorial waters or anything that's since changed. But the thing that's really interesting is they got recognition from another country and Even in the British courts, they said that, yeah, they're outside of our jurisdiction. We have no authority there. And so even though they are in the territorial waters of Britain, they still are recognized as an independent uh, sovereign state. However, it's kind of interesting because of the fact the people in charge of Sealand are still British subjects. And... One of the big things that is going to be with seasteading going forward is as platforms are built and designed and people start inhabiting them out on the open ocean, is as far as the law and the international community is concerned, they care about whose flag are you flying because that shows what jurisdiction do you have. You know, if you're flying an American flag, great, you're under the American jurisdiction, you're front flying a French flag, great, you're under the uh, French jurisdiction. If you're not flying a flag at all, you are considered piracy. And for an example, with the United States in Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution, they have the right to define and punish piracies on the high sea as they see fit. Um, I do want to let, I'm sorry, I, Kirk has been waiting very patiently, so I want to give him the, the opportunity to, to ask his question or make a comment. Go ahead, Kirk. 
Yeah, I was. I'm, I'm curious as to what the uh, the kind of grand vision is, because immediately what comes to mind is the Hanseatic League. You know, all of these micro nations, kind of independent city states engaged in commerce and mutual aid um, with both each other and the nations in which they're located or in proximity to. Could uh, anyone pick that up? Is, is that sort of a, a model for this? It was highly successful in its time. Yeah, absolutely. But I would say that that would even go more in the field of uh, free private cities. Um, I'm, I'm also an ambassador of the Free Cities Foundation. Uh, but I, I mean, these were all land-based projects. Um, yeah, yeah. But but of course, I, I think the Hanseatic City is a great role model because um, some of their member cities were, in fact, independent, but uh, some of them were not. They had some kind of autonomy. Yes, yeah, semi-autonomous, right. And, and so there were, there were various arrangements which worked within the political structures of where they might inhabit, but some were truly, uh, you know, following the model of free ports, independent city-states, following their own rules. And the only difference really would be geography. One would be in the ocean in this context, and the other one was historically, you know, on a continental nation. Sure. Uh, and uh, that's uh, why I also try to link projects with each other to get, get connections, because every micronational or seasteading project, although they might have different approaches, we all want the same, like creating uh, free spaces. So if, if we have something like a micronational Hanseatic League, it <laughs> would be excellent. Yeah, it, you you get you get you get some level of agreement on a few things of mutual benefit, but it doesn't have to be like the EU. Uh, even even Italy and Greece have a difficult time following all of the rules necessary to be in the EU. That was that was the 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 cause of a lot of the grief for those who are member nations now. Uh, and the Hanseatic League didn't have those those same problems. It had other problems, but it didn't have those. Well, and I think one of the best things going forward for CSEDs to do is to form their own IGO, you know, provide an alternative to the United Nations, help other seasteads and kind of do business and trade with one another, and let it be where if other countries, if other societies want to join and be a part of that, great, they can do so. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's like if you don't get invited to the party with the popular kids, have your own party. There's going to be enough people to show up. Exactly. And that's one of the big things that I've been seeing kind of on my dealings with the United Nations and the U.S. through the U.S. Department of State and everything, because I get emails from the State Department every single day. I get like 50 to 100 of them. But it's more and more countries, and you're seeing this especially over in Europe right now with the BRICS and stuff like that, are starting to back away from their long-held agreements and treaties with one another because they just simply don't work anymore. And so they're starting to break away from these things and form their own, whether it's stuff going on with the EU or the SWIFT payment system or whatever. They're breaking away and saying, hey, this doesn't work for us anymore, and so we're going to go and do our own thing. These devs should be doing the exact same thing. Saying, you know what, you guys play your game, we're going to do our own thing over here, and this is how we're going to operate. Thank you. That's one thing I, I would like to draw attention to, as there are still um, on land some parts of the earth 
where it's possible to establish a, a new nation because they are unclaimed or disputed. It's, it's very few territories, but uh, for example, most of Western Antarctica is when, when we look at maps, it's, um, it's no man's land. If, it's quite interesting when I look in a yeah, old uh, school atlas from, let's say, the, the 1950s, uh, the territory in Western Sahara, it's, uh, uh, sorry, in, in Western Antarctica, Western Antarctica is uh, is marked as uh, part of the uh, United States, but um, in fact, in the 1950s, uh, the U.S. Um, yeah, they they gave up this plans of uh, having an Antarctic territory. So there's still a large unclaimed part of uh, of our Earth on in Western Antarctica and uh, also between Serbia and uh, Croatia as uh, remnants of the conflict there in the 1990s. Uh, there are also some territories which are neither claimed by Serbia nor by Croatia. The m probably most famous project in that area is uh, Liberland. I mean, they are trying to establish a city-state on the, on the biggest of these areas between Serbia and Croatia, although they have problems to get there. There are other small projects uh, one um, project is also present here, like I see, um, a dictionary uh, which uh, settles on the territory of Panagua. Well, uh, the, I think we, we sh should not go too much into finding out which is the, the most perfect way to create a micronation, to, to create a free territory, because there are, there are many different ways. Look for uh, an unclaimed territory, build a seastead, or and build your autonomy inside of an existing nation, like through, uh, yeah, through a local currency, through um, establishing a, something like your own um, civil law for uh, business interactions between your members. There, there are so many different approaches, but uh, they all got the same goal. Well, and if I can add something to that real quick, I'll just point out the people being hung up on territory and land and things like that. From a legal standpoint, having physical ground, land, however you want to phrase it, is frankly irrelevant because of the fact it's about who has jurisdiction over that person, that individual, or whatever. In fact, if you take a look at the U.S. history, back when the U.S. was founded, they did not own any land or anything for nine years. So what does that mean for the first nine years? The U.S. technically didn't exist because they didn't own any land until the Treaty of Versailles nine years after the Declaration and the Constitution was done. So having physical land is irrelevant. It's about the legal jurisdiction. Who has the legal jurisdiction? And if somebody is stateless, the United Nations actually has a convention on this where if somebody is stateless, meaning they don't belong to any country, then they are legally subject to whatever jurisdiction that they are found in. So whether people like it or not, you got to be a part of a society. Otherwise, somebody else will just step in and claim jurisdiction over you and impose their will. And there's really no recourse to that. Right. Um, Mitchell, did you want to ask a question? Yes. Um, so I have a question for both of you, but especially Mr. Speakerman. Um, th this kind of relates to, uh, I think, what you were talking about a minute ago. A and going back uh, a while back, you mentioned that you work with several micronations, including one that's in India. 
Um, what I'm thinking about is, are most people involved with micronations and with the, the micronation movement right now, do they, uh, are they looking to relocate to an area that's within the jurisdiction of that micronation, or are they kind of more just looking to be part of the movement at an ideological level? And then in regards to those micronations, are most of them looking to establish themselves in a specific location close to where they are now, or are they looking to establish themselves anywhere, like like you know, going out seeking designs for seasteads or or looking for seasteads to set up shop somewhere else in the globe? It's uh it's pretty different indeed. Um uh, there are some micronations and I would say it's the majority where it's more about belonging to that uh, group and uh yeah to to build connections between each other, maybe to have uh, your own cryptocurrency and uh, to be more like a yes, state of the mind. Uh, but but there are also um, micronations which have the concrete plan to settle, for example, on an unclaimed territory or uh, that are trying to build autonomy within an existing nation. And there are, there are at least some examples for micronations which have already achieved some kind of autonomy and even one or two cases where I would say, is this still a micronation or is this more like an autonomous region? Like, for example, Zaborga, which is in, um, in Liguria, uh, northwestern Italy. Uh, they, they even don't like it that much when one calls them a micronation. Uh, I would say they even got more aspects like Catalonia or, or Scotland. Or the Republic of Usupus, uh, where I'm also involved. It's a micronation in a district of Vilnius, the capital city of Lithuania. Through, um, yes, they got about 8,000 uh, citizens really living there in that city district. But in the 1990s, they declared independence, half tongue and cheat, half, half serious. And uh, they got embassies all over the world and uh, they made it to build even informal relationships with nations. I mean, for, for example, the Indian ambassador to Lithuania was there and a minister of the Indian government some years ago to unveil a, a plaque there in the street with a, a Hindi translation of the constitution of Zupers. They um, they have excellent relations with Lithuanian, Lithuanian politics. They had the Danish crown prince there, the Estonian president, etc. It's uh, it's really a, such a such a wide field of, of so many different projects that uh, one can't say they this they all have uh, the same approach. Right. Yeah. It, it's. It... I guess it's an interesting concept because, as you could imagine it, if there are a thousand different micronations and you could get them all to agree to go to some part of the ocean and get a big group of sea seeds together, if you get them all in one one place, that might provide the kind of economic base for them to actually exist in that location permanently. But then I'd have a hard time imagining people in Liberland, for example, which I believe is near Serbia, um, or, or you know some of the locations that, that you just mentioned, they probably wouldn't want to go out to the middle of the ocean. So you know, one thought that occurs is maybe we could make like a list of the micronations that are interested in seasteading and they could all congregate in one area, but I'm just spitballing ideas. Okay, um, that's, that's one, thank you. That's one vision I, I have. Um, 
I think um, maybe some of you have heard of, uh, I have to look after that, there was a town in Morocco for, for some decades. It was like international territory. It, it was not ruled by, by one country, neither by the Moroccan sultan nor by Spain or French who had colonized uh, Morocco at that time, but it was ruled by a council of uh, the uh, diplomatic representatives of some European nations as well as the United States. And uh, yeah, it, it was Tanga. Tanga, it was like an international territory. And um, my idea is uh, that maybe um, some micronations could come together and uh, have uh, a seastead which does not belong to one project, but which belongs to many projects. Like uh, that, a seastead which belongs to, let's say, 10 micronational projects. And uh, these micronational projects could still have their, their own uh, project on land or uh, more like a state of the mind. Uh, but they would also have this international seastead. One of the things that I think would help any kind of seastead, and especially a group of them, as far as developmenting and building their society and the people, the population, things like that, is to take a look at the uh, sailing and shipping routes that like sailboats and shipping vessels and things like that take and build themselves up along those because those are already areas of the ocean that are completely undeveloped and yet people are passing through there all the time and being in the selling community and being you know part of that then there's a lot of people that talk about the biggest problem they have is having supplies out at sea because it's just vast wide open ocean and getting things from one place to another is very time consuming and very expensive because there's not really any places along the way to stop and do anything. And so if a seastead is able to kind of build itself along one of those trade routes or sailing routes, they'd be able to provide a huge service to that community and also get the financial and business rewards from doing so. Um, so we've reached the end of our time, but I wanted to give each of our speakers a chance to just, you know, give a couple minutes if there's anything that you wanted to talk about but didn't get a chance to um please take a couple minutes now jan you want to go first um okay thank you uh, well uh thank you for all of you for being here um this evening was a great success because as i could see in the audience there were representatives of micronations of the seasteading institute as well as crypto enthusiasts and other liberty loving people and couldn't have gone better because that's my intention really to to bring you all together to start an exchange because I think we all have this in the end the same goal absolutely different approaches but the same goal and uh, yeah I'm, I'm great we were here thank you for being here oh yeah absolutely it's been great having this conversation and engaging with people and yeah it just people need to decide what kind of seastead, what kind of society that they would like to see or be part of. And instead of sitting back and waiting for other people to build it, go start. Go start building it, doing something. And if you like the stuff that I talked about with Freeport or are interested, check out our website, 
freeport.town. If you have any questions, I'm an open book. Uh, again, thanks everyone for coming to our Seasetting Social on Micronations, and I uh, hope to see you again at an event soon. The Seasteading Today podcast is produced and hosted by Carly Jackson. Send feedback and questions to podcast at seasteading.org. To support our podcast and the Seasteading mission, go to seasteading.org slash donate. If you'd like to learn more, read Seasteading, How Floating Nations Will Restore the Environment, Enrich the Poor, Cure the Sick, and Liberate Humanity from Politicians. Politicians.